Yes, and thanks to the breakfast team for another fabulous brekkie show. Next up is Discovery, and we're featuring Taking Drugs to Get Off Drugs, Is It Possible? And Snow, Not Just Fluffy Frozen Water. Hello and welcome. 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 Stand and welcome. Hello, good evening and welcome to Discovery. 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 Listen to Discovery. Discovery. (gasps) Discovery. Discovery. Sounds like a lot of fun. Somewhere in space. This may all be happening right now. Now to the speeded up brain of a user, that sound lasts for four hours and sounds like this. Discovery! Ah, yes, and hello and welcome to Discovery, the National Science Radio Show. I'm Marion Carruthers and on this edition we'll feature Is it possible to take a drug to get off heroin? Some remarkable claims. And all about the fun stuff, snow. But first up, here's the news with Ian Wolfe. Actual physical changes in the brain caused by hypnosis have been shown by Amir Raz and his colleagues at the Wheal Medical College of Cornell University. Over the last few decades, scientific study has explored how hypnosis can change memory and pain perception. Hypnosis has been both a boon for pain control and a danger with false memory syndrome. This new new research suggests that hypnosis can also make it easier to solve certain types of problems. Raz has hypnotised his subjects and then put them in a functional magnetic resonance imager. He had 16 subjects, of whom 8 were easily hypnotisable and 8 were not. They were to take a test after being hypnotised. The volunteers were hypnotised for 25 minutes and told that when they later heard a cue, such as a coughing sound, they would see the printed word as gibberish and only be able to focus on the ink. Researchers then brought them out of their trance state and 10 minutes later asked them to take the Stroop test while in a brain scanner. The Stroop test has subjects named the colour of the ink of letters that spell out different colours, so that blue might be spelled out in red ink. This kind of problem is known as a cognitive conflict and makes your brain work harder. Your brain has to use the anterior cingulate cortex to monitor the conflict and plan for your future actions, as well as call on the visual areas and memory to identify the colour. It takes extra time. Other researchers have previously, suggest, previously suggested that the anterior cingulate cortex is the part of the brain that's affected by hypnosis. In the test, the easily hypnotisable individuals had better accuracy and quicker reaction times compared to the volunteers who were less responsive to hypnosis, and their brain scans showed reduced activity in the visual areas and the anterior cingulate cortex. This gives a lot of support to those who have faced scepticism for years over the reality of hypnosis as an altered brain state, and not just some game played by hypnotist and a subject who just pretends to be hypnotised. Amir Raz says... Words can form suggestions, and suggestions can have very, very strong effects on neurological activity. Italian ethnobotanist Giorgio Samarin has solved the puzzle of why lettuce sap has been used in ancient Rome to dampen sexual desire, and in ancient Egypt to inflame sexual desire. In ancient Greece and Rome, the milky sap from lettuce has been used as a sedative and painkiller. 
In the first century AD, the Roman army used it to drive out sexual dreams of soldiers. Pliny the Elder wrote about its ability to dampen sexual desire a hundred years later. However, archaeological evidence also shows that it was used as an aphrodisiac in ancient Egypt, in an offering to the fertility and sexuality god Min. For more than a hundred years, archaeologists have wondered why a vegetable used to calm dreams was associated with the exuberant sexuality of Min. Samarin tested the hormone-like phytochemicals in lettuce sap and found that the effect depends on the dose. The milky sap comes from cutting the stem of the plant. A small dose of one gram of lettuce sap causes the calming and pain-killing effects to appear because the presence of lactosin and lactocoprosin. At the higher doses of 2 to 3 grams, the stimulating effects of cocaine-like tropane alkaloids dominate, acting like an aphrodisiac. So the Romans had a small amount of lettuce sap to calm down, and the Egyptians used a larger dose of wild lettuce sap to get excited. Further tests are needed to confirm Samarin's results at the Civic Museum at Roverto. Luckily, lettuce is legal, grows wild in several countries, and is safe to eat. A new study from St Thomas Hospital in London, focusing on the effects of obesity and smoking on ageing, has also shed light on what has been touted as the upper limit of how long people can live, the Hayflick limit. The Hayflick limit was discovered by Leonard Hayflick in 1961, and it refers to the fact that normal human body cells are mortal. Telomeres are the fuse that burns down every time a cell replicates. So when that's boom time, the cell stops replicating and starts to clog up with waste and eventually dies. In bottles, they reproduce 50 times before they stop replicating. This has been compared to ageing of the human body, and suggested as part of the ageing mechanism, although nobody has any proof yet. Until now, nobody has published the figures to translate from 50 cell replications in the lab into how many years of life you could reach if all diseases and injuries were healed before your cells stopped replicating and just died. Tim Spector measured the length of the telomere fuse as it burned down in a study of 1,122 women, and importantly, the rate at which it burned down. He also looked at the effects of obesity and smoking, and it's no surprise that they make you age much faster. Even if we cure all diseases and heal all injuries, as long as we're flesh, the Hayflick limit would kill us in the end. So, how long would that give us? Any study at St Thomas's Hospital in London, Tim Spector measured the length of the telomeres and found that in 18-year-olds, the telomeres were 7,500 base pairs of chromosomes long. Now, the telomeres shortened at an average rate of 27 base pairs per year. By simple back-of-the-envelope calculations, that gives them 277 years of life before their cells stop replicating. Since they started at 18 years of age, that means they get, on average, 295 years of life. I feel confident in saying that nobody on record has lived long enough to be killed by the Hayflick limit. I worry about getting my telomere shortened when I'm halfway there at a young 142. Thanks to Ian Wolfe.
You're listening to Discovery. For hundreds of years, the Bwiti people from the African countries of Gabon and Cameroon have performed coming-of-age religious ceremonies where the participants eat the roots of a local shrub in order to induce visions and make contact with their ancestors. The African shrub may also hold the secret to curing the neurological disease of drug addiction. Jackie Hayes reports. In 1962, in New York, a 19-year-old heroin addict named Howard Lotsoff obtained a drug called Ibogaine from a black market chemist. It was a purified chemical from the roots of a West African shrub and claimed a 36-hour trip. Lotsoff gave this drug to 19 other people, of whom seven were heroin addicts. After taking this drug and experiencing hallucinations for a day and a half, the seven addicts noticed that their desire for heroin had decreased and stopped taking it for at least six months with little or no acute withdrawal. Lotsoff tried to attract attention to this remarkable discovery. However, given the structure of scientific knowledge, it's not surprising that no credit was given to the anecdotal reports of an ex-drug addict with no formal scientific training. Sometime later... Dr. Deborah Mash from the University of Miami heard about the anecdotal claims regarding Ibogaine. She found that Ibogaine has a basic chemical structure similar to that of the neurotransmitter serotonin, but side chains that have affinity for the same sites as heroin and cocaine. Her team discovered the metabolic pathway of Ibogaine and later won a patent dispute with Howard Lotsoff. More recently, a team of researchers at the University of California looked for a way to deliver the benefits of Ibogaine without any dangerous side effects. They tested rats with addictions to alcohol in cases where the rats were allowed to administer their own alcohol on a daily basis. Rats that were treated with Ibogaine significantly reduced their intake of alcohol. The researchers also found that the rats treated with Ibogaine had an increased production of a nerve growth factor called glial cell line-derived nootropic factor, or GDNF. This increased production of GDNF occurred in an area of the brain called the ventral tegmental area, which is also known as responsible for alcohol addiction. Furthermore, they found that injecting Ibogaine or GDNF directly into this part of the brain decreased the alcohol craving in rats. The results were published in the Journal of Neuroscience at the beginning of this year. However, no clinical trials with humans have ever taken place. The drug Ibogaine puts the patient in a state similar to dreaming for 36 hours without loss of consciousness or deterioration of one's own thought process. The purpose of dreaming is essentially unknown to modern science, although it seems that our dreams reset the biochemical pathways in our brain. 
Dysfunctional dreaming is related to post-traumatic stress disorder and may also be involved in depression. It's been suggested that the drug Ibogaine has a similar effect on the brain as, as dreaming in that it resets our biochemical pathways. Since it's such a novel drug, there's also potential for Ibogaine to provide insights into how our brain actually works. More generally, there has been a revived interest in hallucinogenic drugs playing a role in fighting addictions. In the 1960s, LSD and related drugs were considered a promising treatment for addiction. One of the prominent members of this movement was Howard Sy Harvard psychologist Timothy Leary, who began testing whether psilocybin, the psychoactive chemical in magic mushrooms, and LSD could treat alcoholism and rehabilitate convicts. Unfortunately, Leary started claiming that psychedelic drugs were the road to spiritual enlightenment, which helped trigger a backlash against the growing popularity of LSD. And by the late 1960s, psychedelic drugs were being outlawed in many developed countries around the world. This also meant that clinical research was halted. However, some scientists just never lost their trust in the potential of psychedelic medicine and have been extremely persistent. The research into Ibogaine is reflective of the effort of these scientists and it's beginning to pay off. In countries like the United States, where psychedelic drugs have been banned for more than 40 years, psych scientists are starting to once again do research into their potential medical benefits. Thanks to Jackie Hayes. You're listening to Discovery.
A friend of mine just experienced snow for the first time, with snow falling magically from the sky and snowflakes forming upon her jacket. And then it got to me thinking, snow is water, right? But that's all I could say. That's all I could remember. So I went and found out a little bit more with my, with my radio as my witness. I asked the rest of the people in the audience to ask me anything snowflake related. I am your icy water precipitation of knowledge. Well, I, I think the first thing we should ask is whether or not the subject of uniqueness is true. Is it true that every single snowflake is unique? This is the, the thing I was always told as a kid, that every snowflake is unique, like a fingerprint, if you will. Um, <laughs> and so I, that was the first thing I checked out. It turns out there's an exceptionally nerdy meteorologist called Nancy Knight, um, I have been doing my research, who has two recorded snowflakes that are exactly the same. They're not the big, shiny snowflakes, but they're quite simple, primitive, hexagonal prisms in a sense. But they are the same, and they were formed separately, and they are photographed, and you can find them online. Um, they are seemingly unique because they all form particularly um, in, a, in exceptionally certain circumstances. The humidity, the temperature, and the pressure of each snowflake getting formed is, is particular to exactly where it is formed. It changes um, over you know a period of metres and centimetres. So each one kind of gets formed um, by the circumstances it in, it's in. So you need to recreate the circumstances to recreate the snowflake. That's why it is that it seems that they're all different. Then is it true that they're all six-pointed stars, that they're hexacles? Ah, yes, hexagonal and hexacles. That's exactly right. They are definitely true um, to the second question. It's because um, water, and as it grows, it grows in a hexagonal lattice. They join together in sort of forms of six. Now, when you look at one, it kind of does look like a star. It's got points and it's got a centre. 
um, and they do grow out of the middle, um, but they don't necessarily grow into like a Star of David star. They can pick up pretty much any shape depending on the, as I said before, pressure, temperature and density of the air that they're growing in, but always the six points because that's down to the sort of very nucleus of the thing, how water grows. Does that also mean that they're symmetrical? They're almost symmetrical because each, like a lot of people have thought for a long time that they are all symmetrical and six-pointedly symmetrical. And there's a lot of theories about why it is that that happens. Perhaps that there's some sort of communication across the spines, across the different um, arms and legs, if you will. Um, the most the most commonly thought theory is that because the temperature, pressure and um, humidity doesn't change over the size of the snowflake because it's quite, you know, the snowflake's exceptionally small, um, that they're all in the same circumstance, all of the different arms, so they all grow to be the same. Now I've seen quite a, I had a look, I look at quite a few photos because um, it's a lot of easier to learn visually than it is to learn with text and a lot of them are, are exceptionally similar but some of them have um, sort of clear differentiation. So the shape will be the same, but not necessarily um, exactly symmetric. So they'll be nigh symmetric. So how big do they grow? Like how big is a snowflake? A snowflake's pretty small. Um, I'm trying to think, I'm not sure how, what the biggest snowflake is, but they're, a, a lot of them are impersible. So snow in itself um, is, uh, you know, it, it is in a sense frozen water. It's about 10 times less dense than water. So if you get um, a millimetre of rain, that's equivalent to being a centimetre of snow um, if it were to fall, you know, one warm and one cold. The snowflakes themselves, because they're the joining of all of these lattice together um, bits of water, can grow to, and this is just a, a guess from my own personal experience, to be about as big as your thumbnail if you're really lucky, but usually, say, a quarter of the size. So, so what's the difference between snow and hail, then? Ah, okay. So, snow um, is the sort of conjoined um, uh, snowflakes. So, snow is made up of a series of snowflakes, multitudes of snowflakes. Whereas, hail, is, and for that matter, sleet, and for also that matter, most of the artificial snow from man-made snow machines that you see out on the snowfields, all of those are not actually snow because they're not made up of um, snowflakes joined together and mushed together that, that most of those things are just made up of frozen water and like any rain it's you know water frozen around a bit of dirt that forms it to fall um, and that's about all there is in the world of snowflakes thanks to keir smith for that 60 second science ever wonder why lemons are so sour maybe they're just unhappy with their life or it might be for a much more important reason. Lemon juice could well be a missing link in the world's fight against AIDS. Professor Roger Short from the University of Melbourne has found that common lemon juice mixed with water kills over 90% of sperm carrying HIV as well as many other sexually transmitted diseases. An announcement about the first human trials of the lemon juice treatment was made by officials in Bangkok at an international AIDS conference meeting to discuss the rising HIV infection rate in the Asia Pacific region. This breakthrough is welcome news in light of a recent rise in HIV infections. For example, in Victoria, incidents of HIV are up from 160 a year in the late 90s to 216 a year in 2000. If these new human trials prove a success, the days of five-year-olds running lemonade stands on street corners could well be back in with a new and very unlikely customer base. 60 Second Science Ben Webb from St Andrews Cathedral School. 
60 Second Science is brought to you by high school students enrolled in the University of Sydney's course Problem Solving and Communication in Science. Oh no. You're listening to Community Radio's National Science Show, Discovery, brought to you across Australia by the Community Radio Network. That's all from us in this edition of Discovery. If you'd like to contact us, and many do, you can reach us via email at discovery at 2ser.com. That's discovery at 2ser.com. Contributing to the program were the husky tones of Ian Wolfe, the perkiness of Jackie Hayes, and always smooth Keir Smith. Discovery has produced by me, Marion Carruthers, in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Discovery is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Marion Carruthers. Why don't you join us for more science next week on Discovery.